Hey, what's up? Hello, everybody. Alex Kapitko here, and guess what? It is Wednesday, December 28th, I want to say. Cold, sunny here. I went on a good run, slowly getting prepared mentally to get back to Chicago within the next five days. Can't say I'm excited to get back to Chicago, (laughs) considering how the weather's been, you know, the last week, and just the darkness, and the crime, and blah, 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 but I could rant all day about that, but looks like this might be one of my last months in Chicago, probably last month, so fingers crossed on that, but anyways, enjoying the time here. Looks like the airline stuff is not going much better today, (laughs) to say the least. I was talking to another buddy whose family are still still stuck with him in Chicago, and I guess their flight has been canceled three days in a row. I mean, uh, cancellations happen. We all know that like problems happen, right? But over the holidays when you're planning, like three days is a little bit insane. And I really hope that Southwest is just put under a microscope after this because they're blaming the weather, which is always interesting. But a good buddy of mine said those cyber storms can be quite brutal. And I think that's more the issue that uh, (laughs) Southwest is having. They are just seeing just a cascading failure right now with just outdated technology and all the above. So I hope they're, I hope they're put under a microscope and really held accountable. Of course, Pete Buttigieg, in my opinion, has been a useless transportation secretary. And we had a similar crisis, not quite as bad, but a similar issue over, what, what was it, the summer? I think it was over 4th of July. And, you know, he investigated and told people to focus on consumer protection. But nothing was really fixed. He also was involved in that quite catastrophic railroad strike that just led to not really giving railroad workers any days off or sick days. I don't know. Everyone says that Pete Buttigieg, you know, will be one of the runners-up or one of the fresh faces to be president one day. I'm not seeing it. Yeah, he was the mayor of a small town, which I've gone through a few times, South Bend, Indiana. I don't know if that makes him just all of a sudden meant to be president or a good politician. Like, he's a Rhodes Scholar, smart guy, veteran. Doesn't mean you're good at politics all the time. And I'm just not seeing anything impressive. And, you know, he's, again, using jets now, flying on the taxpayer dollar because the airlines don't work for him either. So maybe if maybe if enough of his flights get canceled and he has to keep flying private, maybe he'll change. I don't know, but... For the rest of people, you can't just buy a private jet or rent a private jet, I guess, to travel. And it looks like things are getting kind of chaotic here. So I'm assuming it's probably going to be days or even a week before things start getting back to normal. So we shall see. This is going to be a mainly international episode today. I want to talk about the predictions from a madman. And that madman is Dmitry Medvedev. Kind of one of the, I guess you could say the number two in Russia. He used to actually be the president. And when him and Putin were exercising that tan democracy chaos, he's had some interesting rants that I want to talk about. Then I want to talk about Syria and Turkish officials meeting in Moscow. Uh, Peace talks, potentially. First time they've talked in a long time since the Syrian civil war began. So that's fascinating. And then I want to talk about Basically, China's entered their zero fucks mode, their zero Fs given mode, where they're just letting COVID, they're just opening up the floodgates, COVID's coming in, and that's going to be chaos. But first, some sad news, Jamie Raskin, Democratic representative out of Maryland, 
someone I think is quite a smart character, quite a smart congressman, and someone that I actually think would probably be a pretty decent president one day, though he's Jewish, so who knows what type of like pushback he would get or criticism or whatever, considering we haven't had a Jewish president. But anyways, he's been really instrumental in the January 6th committee, and I guess he announced today, Wednesday, that he has a serious, in quotes, but curable form of cancer and is going to begin outpatient treatment. And he put out a statement, and I'll read the statement here. It says, in quotes here, After several days of tests, I have been diagnosed with, uh, with diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, which is a serious but curable form of cancer. I'm about to embark on a course of chemoimmunotherapy on an outpatient basis at MedStar Georgetown University Hospital and Lombardi Comprehensive Cancer Center. Prognosis for most people in my situation is excellent after four months of treatment. So, obviously bad news. You never like to hear serious but curable. But then again, the prognosis is somewhat positive for that. I, I looked it up after I saw this article and just... You know, sending sending my uh, as I mean, as much as people always hate to hear this, sending my thoughts and prayers to him because he's a guy that I think has really been good at holding people accountable. He also lost his son, I believe it was. It was I don't think it was his daughter. I think it was his son. Lost his son to suicide. I'm assuming that's really weighed on him. His daughter, I think, was even visiting the Capitol when the January 6th stuff happened. Um, and he's still there fighting. And I don't agree with all of his politics. He's definitely too progressive for me. But he's someone, kind of like a Liz Cheney for some liberals, who, even if you don't agree with their politics, their fortitude and strength are important, and he's going to need it for this next step. But, you know, the prognosis sounds like it's somewhat optimistic here, and I just hope everything goes his way. I am assuming he will not be super involved in a lot of things, but as we see time and time again, treatment for these type of diseases is getting just better and better as time goes on. Not sure if all cancer will ever be curable, but it just looks like treating it has gotten so much better. And based on the places he's going, I think he'll be okay. So yeah, not not the best news, especially because yesterday he said that he sees Trump finishing his life behind bars, which maybe he's being optimistic. Maybe he knows more than we do, but he, he will be a big figure on the historical record of trying to hold Trump accountable. And no matter what happens to him, hopefully nothing bad. He will always be remembered for that in my book. So thoughts and prayers are with uh, Congressman Raskin. So uh, the main thing I want to talk about today, or at least the first thing, is I want to talk about just kind of a <laughs> sort of fascinating, chaotic, interesting story, whatever whatever word, adjective you want to use for it. But I think this whole segment provides us with a look and some insight into the mind of one of Vladimir Putin's biggest sycophants, and also where the people that we would consider somewhat reasonable Russian elites and politicians, what type of rabbit holes they've gone down. And I'm talking about Dmitry Medvedev, who, from my understanding, and from kind of our American standards here, was one of the more moderate Kremlin officials who was actually pro-Western alliances and pro-working with the West. He's the guy, if you guys remember, where Obama said after the election, he can be much nicer to Russia. He said that to Medvedev when they were meeting. Medvedev was president for some of Obama's administration when Putin kind of took a back seat, I guess you could say. And basically over the last few days, Medvedev has gone on a very strange diatribe on Twitter. Or you could say the rantings of either a madman or a drunk or a guy who knows that time is running out. Or maybe all three. I don't particularly know. But 
He's predicted the creation of a Fourth Reich, which kind of alludes to a lot of the Russian conspiracies out there right now about Ukraine. He talks about civil war in the U.S., US <laughs> Russian victory, the EU collapsing, changes in the global economy. And it's a very fascinating one, which we'll get into more details later. But it just seems like since the invasion of Ukraine, Medvedev has just gone down some sort of booze-infused or delusion-infused rabbit hole. And I guess when you're in a system where information is probably not accurate anymore and the top elite are just being told what Putin wants to hear, maybe you start believing this stuff. Maybe you convince yourself you believe this stuff. I don't particularly know. And, oh yeah, that's right. <laughs> this is something important that I forgot to say. Elon Musk um, has responded to this crazy deluge of tweets, and he's kind of not voiced support, but he's liked what Medvedev said, because Medvedev said that Musk would eventually be president of the United States. So of course, if you're a narcissist, you like to hear that, even if it's coming from someone like Medvedev. And I think Medvedev a few months ago also, just to add more to this, has talked about like Russia needing to use nukes. So the guy who was once kind of a more moderate is now definitely not. It's kind of like the Elise Stefanik or Tulsi Gabbard type of dilemma here. So that's always fun. Just a little background on Medvedev. He currently has been serving as the deputy chairman of the Security Council of Russia. I think that's since 2020. He was mainly known for serving as the president of Russia between 20, or sorry, between 2008 and 2012, and then the prime minister of Russia between 2012 and 2020. So... Medvedev was elected in that 2008 election after, from my understanding, Putin was term limited under the current Russian system, and they kind of did this share power sharing where Medvedev took Putin's seat, he sat back, and they were able to actually change the, the system so that Putin could then come back into power and still be there to this day. Basically make reforms to let Putin remain in power. All that worked out. And it sounds like Medvedev's loyalty to Putin over the last couple years especially, has paid off because from all the reports I've seen, he's currently, or at least he was recently promoted to serve as Putin's deputy on some sort of body that oversees the entire military industry. So, you know, sucking up, kissing someone's ass pays off. Medvedev is showing that. So anyways, going on to this rantings from a madman that we've seen recently, or a radicalized man, Reuters notes that, and sorry, sorry, I, I missed the page. Uh, Reuters notes here in quotes, star rising in Kremlin, Russia's Medvedev, predicts war in West. And then the article goes on in quotes to say, former Russian president Dmitry Medvedev, an arc loyalist of President Vladimir Putin, was given a new job of this week. He predicted war between Germany and France next year and a civil war in the United States that could lead to Elon Musk becoming president. And I, I guess some of this was interesting, and we'll get into all the things he said and kind of why it troubles me a little bit. But I should also note that this guy's a lawyer by trade. And all of a sudden, he's becoming some sort of like conspiratorial economist, even though he's really, let's just say economics and these type of affairs are not really his expertise, but he sure has a lot to say about this. So we'll start with the economics. He starts by saying that oil is going to rise to $150 a barrel, which I don't think is any secret would be good for Russia, even though 
he seems to neglect the way world trends are going right now in terms of energy. But anyways, we will continue. He also discusses that the United Kingdom will rejoin the European Union, but when it does, this will destroy the European Union and the euro will end as a currency. He also then goes on to say that the largest stock markets will abandon the West and only lean towards Asia and Russia. I guess of these, <laughs> the, the largest stock markets abandoning the West and going to Asia and Russia, I mean, maybe there's a few, but that just seems like a little bit out of reach, I guess, because there are still people that like to buy things in the West. So I, I don't see that particularly happening, especially when we're seeing kind of a clampdown on markets in the East. I think the only one that could be true is that the UK could try to get somehow reacquainted with the European Union. I don't think that would be crazy because I, you know, the, the, the European Union is not doing well, obviously. But the UK kind of needed the EU. They don't want to admit that. But as their economy gets worse, at least over this year, inflation and all the other political chaos has not helped. But again, I don't think Medvedev is correct when he says it would just completely bring down the EU. That's probably a few years off. Moving on, though, the, the, the worst part is while the economic predictions he has aren't really that accurate and they lack kind of context or accuracy or the full picture, at least the economic stuff is kind of grounded in what's happening in the world right now, where I guess if you're an extremist, you could view them as happening. Like there's at least some semblance of reality. However, in the next section, he goes into war and geopolitical dynamics and these rants get weirder and even weirder and just show either this guy's living in a bubble or he's drinking way too much Kool-Aid that's, you know, spiked with vodka here. And he implies that Russia defeats and partitions Ukraine, first off. And then, I guess, Poland and Hungary take parts of Ukraine as well. How this happens, none of us know, but he sure talks about that. Now, that's a bold one. Also, to think about Poland and Hungary agreeing on that, I okay, whatever. I guess they are both kind of more right-leaning nationalist governments. But anyways, then Medvedev gets weirder. He says that after all this partitioning happens, there will be a fourth Reich, basically. You know, Third Reich was Hitler's one, didn't end too well. But now he says there's going to be a fourth Reich, which will be created, in quotes, encompassing the territory of Germany and its satellites, i.e. Poland, the Baltic states, Czechia, Slovakia, the Kiev Republic, and other outcasts, as he calls them. Now, <laughs> I think this is of note because all these places he has labeled are former Soviet states that have fallen out of favor with Russia and seem to despise Russia. There's a very through line with all these places he's mentioned. So as a propaganda tool, that makes perfect sense to me. Also, this is of note because it plays into the conspiracy theories that Russia has been putting out since day one of the invasion of Ukraine, that Ukraine is a Nazi state and they're just liberating Ukraine from Nazis. Using the term of the Fourth Reich is a very interesting way to kind of propagate that term. And I guess if you were trying to rally people to think, oh, we don't want a Fourth Reich, maybe we need to support Russian nationalism in that area. But this Fourth Reich more seems to be kind of a catch-all term for Russia's disdain for this region, in my opinion. I also find it fascinating. <laughs> and so then, okay, so going on, then he says war breaks out between this Fourth Reich, which is, again, Poland, the Baltic states, Czechia, Slovakia, the Kiev Republic, 
and other outcasts. A war breaks out between these groups in France, and I guess Germany as well, because Germany actually... Okay, so Germany's kind of part of this, but, but then he says Europe is completely divided over this. Then he says this will lead to Northern Ireland joining Ireland, which makes no sense because he thinks the EU is collapsing. Collapsing. So why would they want to join a place that's in the EU? But if if the UK is in the EU too. Anyways, we don't ask too many questions here because it doesn't make a lot of sense. But then he gets into the United States, which is even more fun. He discusses how civil war will break out in the U.S. California and Texas will become independent during this civil war. And very astute point by Medvedev. And of course, I'm kidding. He says Texas and Mexico are going to form this allied state or some kind of quasi-new country. And I don't know if he reads or follows current events very well because based on what I've been telling you guys about Greg Abbott in Texas, I don't think they want to be unified with our brothers south of the border. So Medvedev seems to lack that understanding. Again, I think he's just spewing out talking points from a very isolated society at this point. But he does end with another interesting, albeit troubling and unlikely, I hope, but again, we can't have nice things, but a hopefully unlikely prediction. He says that Elon Musk, in quotes, will win the presidential election in a number of states, which, after the new civil war's end, will have been given to the GOP. And I don't really know how to unpack all of that. I really don't. But it's probably not good. But again, it, it, this seems like a guy who has just, like, he has a hat at his desk. He takes a swig of vodka and then goes into the hat and pulls out just different culture war topics and then puts them onto a piece of paper and just reads them into a sentence. I used to do this in Spain when I was teaching English, is... You would just pull out different words and try to make a sentence out of them. And that's what it seems like here. He's just finding every culture war talking point. Elon Musk, Civil War, GOP, Border, Northern Ireland, Fourth... I mean, it's just like, Jesus Christ, man. But anyways, I think Tom Nichols has a good article in The Atlantic. And he writes, Look, stop asking questions. Medvedev was once a moderate and relatively pro-Western Russian president. But he's changed his mind. As William Hurt's character says in The Big Chill, sometimes you have to let art flow over you. <laughs> and while I like what Tom Nichols says, to me there seems to be more strong vodka flowing in Medvedev's veins than art. But maybe it's the vodka that makes the art flow over you. Something like that. I, I, I can't even pretend to know anymore. And of course, after all of this, our good friend Elon Musk saw this diatribe of craziness, saw him mentioned in it, and had to call out Medvedev for the craziness, the dangerous ideas, and the inaccuracies coming from the top Kremlin official. Of course, I'm joking. Musk responded with, in quotes, epic thread, bro. I, I, I added the bro, but he said epic thread. Then he did clarify his position, in quotes, saying, those are definitely the most absurd predictions I've ever heard while also showing astonishing lack of awareness of the progress of artificial intelligence and sustainable energy. So he, you know, he pushes back. So I'm not going to really overreact here because Musk does what he does best. But I, I guess you could worry that because Musk has kind of retconned the Ukrainian conflict and he's put out ideas about holding elections in eastern Ukraine, I think he should probably just say like, no man, F you, get off this. I don't know, like, to, to say first, epic thread, 
and then push back. Like I just think Musk needs to probably not be on Twitter or like like not be running Twitter anymore, I guess. Who knows? And finally, I will add, there is like a problem here. And I think Tom Nichols puts it best in his Atlantic article, so I'm just going to read it. He says here in quotes, I don't care that Dmitry Medvedev sounds like a guy in a musty Soviet beer joint railing about the United States. I care that a senior Kremlin official, a man who was once at the top of the nuclear chain of command in Russia, is tweeting out vile nonsense and people are merely shrugging, like it's just another day in our weird country. I care that one of the richest men in the world, an industrialist who controls a large swath of the public square, responded to these unhinged tweets like a goofy teenager. And he's right. And Nichols actually goes on in the article to talk about how he's not much of a guy for nostalgia, but he actually misses the days when Soviet leaders had some sensibility. Like when you're talking with people like Nikita Khrushchev, for example, Gorbachev, at least these, these individuals had some restraint and understood the like gravity of the situation, basically. And it seems like these current Russians are more on line with the imploding bureaucracy and the carelessness of a Reich that they actually keep criticizing, but they have more parallels with the Third Reich than than the Soviets, in my opinion. And maybe it's all projection, I don't know, but it's just not good. And I just feel like, I feel like Elon Musk is, is really not the bigger part of the story here, but... He just likes to enter. He likes entertainment so much that maybe sometimes he should just like stay out of this stuff. So, who knows? And I think this is a perfect segue into something else that is probably not great news, but I think reflects another issue in this illiberal authoritarianism that we see metastasizing. We're seeing some of the worst actors in the world get closer and somewhat kind of isolate themselves from some of the more liberal actors. And what I mean here is that today there are reports all over about kind of a meeting of the minds or more like a meeting of the maniacs, a meeting of the dictators or autocrats. And it's between Turkey, Syria, and Russia. Mainly it's between Turkey and Syria, but it's just being held in Moscow. And... It's kind of fascinating, and I'll kind of get into the nitty-gritty stuff here for a moment, because for a while, Turkey itself has kind of been a thorn in the West side, and especially in NATO's side, mainly in dealing with Russian aggression, dealing with destabilization in the Middle East. Turkey took on a lot of refugees during the Civil War, but also they have their own ulterior motives there. Also, I don't know if you guys remember when Erdogan came to the U.S. to meet with Trump, there were Kurds and other anti-Erdogan Americans, Turkish Americans, protesting him, and he had his goons come beat the junk out of him. I don't think that's a good look. But anyways, Erdogan has always kind of been a guy we need, but we don't really like. Turkey's part of NATO, and it has super important military bases that the U.S. and our allies need to basically be kind of a bulwark for extremism or other groups that we don't agree with in the Middle East. And of course, Erdogan is more of a fundamentalist Muslim that appeals to the rural, more fundamentalist, traditional Turkey, not the more secular Turkey that we've always been allied with in the past. And of course, he's a strong man and an ally of Putin. 
And he kind of wants the cake and he wants to eat it, which has been a common trend of things I've been talking about lately. And, you know, he wants to help us, but he also wants to help Putin. He kind of wants to be the middleman involved. For example, like every time Finland and Sweden are talking about joining NATO, Turkey threatens to block it unless certain restrictions on Russia are either lifted or at least made not as severe. And to me, Turkey is just a bad actor in a region that is full of bad actors, and it's the least bad actor in this region, so it's kind of a necessary partner. And I don't personally think that Erdogan actually supports Putin's invasion of Ukraine. He probably thinks it's a pain in the ass. But a lot like India, Russia is an important ally, and he needs them as an ally. Because even though Turkey is part of NATO, Turkey has stronger alliances with places like Russia. And I think because of this, Turkey is good at playing at both sides. Turkey has been quite effective at straddling this kind of divide between the West and Russia during the invasion of Ukraine. Because under Erdogan's leadership, Turkey has expanded trade and energy ties with Russia. While also, and this is an interesting one, while selling weapons to Ukraine and facilitating negotiations on quite a myriad of issues. And this is where it gets kind of complicated. It's like, do you want the cake or do you want to eat it? Or do you just want the cake not to exist? I don't particularly know here, but I guess, like, I, I really have issues with these type of countries. Like, just go all in. Like, you don't see China, like, giving Ukraine weapons and then helping Russia. China's just kind of, like, been silent or just gone all in with Russia. And look, if you're going to go in with Russia, don't play both sides here because it's just counterproductive. But here's here's where we're at. But on the other side, I'm just giving you guys some background before I get into these negotiations. Of course, we all know about Syria, right? I mean, I won't stray on it too long, but basically Assad, you know, there's a civil war that goes out in the early, or the early 2010s and Assad eventually gets help from Russia and inevitably lets Putin test out bombing methods and very indiscriminate bombing methods in places like Aleppo years before the invasion of Ukraine. And when you look at some of the photos and then see what Putin's doing in Ukraine, you kind of go, this sounds eerily similar to when Franco, Francisco Franco in Spain, let Adolf Hitler test out his new aerial methods on the town of Guernica in Basque, Spain, right? It seems like Syria was a place where Putin and the Wagner group really worked quite hard to see what they were capable of. And we also know that it was Russia's assistance that really helped Assad in the Syrian war because Russia was a key actor in this conflict and the two countries are close. And I think Russia's aid is really what helped Assad eventually like kind of destroy the rebels. And then you have the immigration crisis. And that's where it gets even more interesting because Turkey actually took in a lot of the refugees from the Syrian civil war and was really not popular with Syria during this time. And it gets interesting here because while both sides have close ties to Russia, Syria and Turkey kind of hate each other. They are not friends, and I guess you could consider them more, more adjacent to being enemies than friends. And the Wall Street Journal notes and quotes here, Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan was the chief foreign supporter of an armed rebellion that sought to topple Syrian President Bashar al-Assad amid the uprisings of the Arab Spring. That's what I was talking about, is that 
even though these both of these strongmen, Assad and Erdogan, are friends with Putin, both of them were on different sides of the Syrian civil war, and that kind of makes sense. So anyways, this is kind of a big deal that we are seeing today, R Russia brokering some sort of summit between Syria and Turkey. And the Wall Street Journal has a great article on this current meeting. It talks about how Turkey's defense minister and intelligence chief held talks with their Syrian counterparts, counterparts sorry, in Moscow on Wednesday. This was the first formal, high-level meeting between the two Middle Eastern governments since the eruption of a civil war in Syria in 2011. Basically, Ankara, which is in Turkey, capital, is beginning to open dialogue with Damascus, Syria, and Russia's brokering it, I guess. And it seems like the main talk here is trying to open up some sort of communique that focuses on stopping all forms of, in quotes, terrorism in Syria, stabilizing Syria. And the officials agreed, in quotes, on the need for the continuation of joint dialogue to achieve stability in Syria. And that was according to Syria's state-run news agency, S-A-N-A. -A. And, yeah, Assad pretty much destroyed the rebels, which Turkey at one point was backing, early on. And now Turkey has somewhat changed its position, after, <laughs> actually after almost going into conflict with Russia, because... Syria was actually where I first thought we would see some sort of a global conflict because you had so many actors helping both sides of the civil war that it seemed like someone was going to get killed by another country's weapons and then there was going to be some World War I type of situation. And while that never happened, you did have, you did have Turkish officials almost kill some Russian officials that almost led to a conflict. So that wasn't good. But Turkey's kind of quieted down a lot on that front and Turkey is more focused on the Kurds and it seems like like Syria and Turkey can kind of agree on fighting the Kurds I think in a sense when they talk about terrorism they usually are just talking about ISIS or the Kurds <laughs> and the Wall Street Journal here writes Mr. Erdogan has sought to use international influence gained from his role in the Ukraine crisis to advance Turkey's interest he is seeking Russian approval for a new Turkish military incursion against Kurdish militants in northeastern Syria. Turkey has sought a slow-burning war with Kurdish separatists for decades. Apparently, this was only made worse when there was a deadly bombing in Istanbul that Erdogan has said the, the Kurds orchestrated. And I think this is my theory here, is that they're only meeting. Like, literally, they are only meeting because... Erdogan wants to wipe out the Kurds, and some of the Kurds he wants to wipe out are not in Turkey. They're also in Syria. And at the same time, I would assume that Assad like, would be kind of okay if they got rid of some of the opposition to what he views as the state. And this is something they could probably agree on. And I guess probably the goal is to open up some sort of dialogue to the point where the heads of state, so you have Assad meeting with Erdogan, and they can actually agree on forming some sort of new joint military operation with Russian help to wipe out the Kurdish Workers' Party in Turkey and its Syrian branch as well, because it's a very interstate type of group. And I don't think this will stabilize Syria. I just want to say that first, because this meeting to me is worrying because these three groups define terrorism as this general, all-encompassing thing, which, of course, the U.S. did at one point, so we're not perfect there either. 
But the way they define terrorism is seems to be in opposition to the state. And the meeting is also troubling because it seems, I mean, even Iran has expressed concerns. And the Iranian regime is not exactly friends of the Kurds. But even the Iranian regime doesn't think this is a good idea. The United States has spoken out. Other NATO countries have spoken out. And I think, I think the concern here is that this could really destabilize the area instead of stabilize it because going after different ethnic groups, calling them terrorists, even if they do things, because I'm sure the Kurds respond in violent ways. It's, a again, a two sides to tango type of situation here. But this new joint military operation that could be in the works is not a good idea. And there's also a through trend here is that, you know, I talked about Kosovo and Serbia yesterday, talking about this today. It seems like Putin wants to get his hands dirty in anything that helps distract from Ukraine or anything that's kind of similar to Ukraine. And that worries me as well, because we are seeing these awful, bad, illiberal states getting closer together and forming alliances. So when I see these guys who have never talked in years talk about getting rid of terrorists and stabilizing Syria with the help of Russia, I just go, hell no, that does not sound good to me. So yeah, it's going to be interesting to kind of follow this, and I I keep saying this, and I really need to, but I, I do want to do a longer episode on kind of the Kurds and what's happening there, because it does seem like the Kurds are one of these groups that there's a lot of parallels to what's happened to other marginalized communities in the 20th century, and they're one of these like multinational groups that are always kind of demonized where they go, and blamed for a lot of issues where they go. Moving on, though, because again, we don't know what's going to really happen there, other than the Turks are the Turkish people are are clearly focused on starting some sort of conflict with the Kurds. But anyways, talking about another autocratic a liberal state, it does look like China has entered into some form of its zero fuck fuck its phase of the pandemic. And it's kind of surprising and like it actually does kind of leave me shocked because After several years of stringent lockdowns, every draconian measure in the book, flawed but enforced testing, travel restrictions, literally bolting doors shut, killing animals because you can't feed them, the country's kind of just said, screw it, we're opening everything up. And the reason I say this is because earlier this week, the Chinese government announced that it's going to end mandatory quarantine for inbound travelers in January. And a lot of people think this will cause record, like record, record, record numbers of Chinese people to prepare to go overseas. I can't even pretend to know what this will look like. But I think it's clear that things could go pretty bad when you have like the transmission they're having with these new policies going ahead. And it looks like other countries share some of my concerns here because a lot of countries have started their own travel restrictions. Just today, reports, the one I'm reading from The Economist, but it was all over the place, reports said that Italy's government said that travelers from China are going to have to take mandatory COVID-19 tests on arrival, becoming the first European country to do so. Also, India, Japan, Malaysia, and South Korea have already announced similar measures to Italy's. Also, just a little bit earlier today, sorry, bumped the table, CNN has reported in quotes here, The United States will require all travelers from China to show a negative COVID-19 test result before flying, as Beijing's rapid easing of COVID-19 restrictions leads to a surge in cases. 
Now, I just want to say, like, I'm not an epidemiologist. I am not a COVID czar. But I, I could have told Chi that this would happen, is if you lock people down for two years and don't get them exposed to anything and have shitty vaccines and then just open the floodgates, there's a reason why they call it opening the floodgates. And it's really unique and fascinating, probably going to be tragic, but... I guess you could say in the political, economic, and social realm, it's going to be interesting because I think The Economist puts this into perspective quite well. It has an article today that writes in quotes here, For a sense of how much the situation in China has changed, look at Japan and India. They are now demanding that incoming Chinese travelers take a COVID test first. In the span of a couple months, China has gone from being a country with an incredibly small number of infections to perhaps the world's COVID hotspot. And, no, I mean, it's kind of funny to think that all these other countries have somewhat opened up, and now they're worried about the country that was worried about infections. <laughs> and basically, as the pandemic is tearing through the country, everything has changed. Everything has changed in regards to stopping the spread of the virus. This inverse is weird. This inverse is weird, where China's now the one that everyone's trying to have tests and restrictions for. I should add that I guess on the political side, though, it is interesting that the Chinese government has just reversed so many of these policies. It's kind of remarkable how public anger, outrage, all these protests did, at least from my understanding, seem to force the Chinese government to lift some restrictions and end their isolation. I guess pressure can work sometimes, even if it's in an autocratic country like China. I don't know. But while, while I think it's going to be interesting to see what happens in China on the socio-political side of this, we are starting to get a picture out of China that is not great. And I talked about this a little bit last week. Apparently officials in Zhejiang, which is a pretty wealthy area, uh, a wealthy province is the correct way to put it, with a population of about 65 million has said that apparently on December 25th, they were seeing a million new infections a day. Not great. I've also read, oh, I mean, I, I guess I've also read that that's probably really understated, but I've also read that hospitals are already on the brink and they're running out of drugs to treat COVID, like Paxlovid that can help with, you know, worsening symptoms. And, you know, if there are places with Paxlovid, the costs are just skyrocketing. Just is not a great great scenario in, in any way and the tragic irony here or whatever you want to call it is that the Chinese government definitely could have done more to prepare for this they could have prepared for these shortages they could have prepared for more PPE for better vaccinations for better tracing and tracking still ways to control the virus while allowing personal freedom. Like, look, I don't always agree with what Spain did, but you still had some like semblance of freedom. But the government here was so focused on lockdowns and controlling the public that they didn't do any of these other things that actually would have kept the place safe. So I just wonder if people are going to be fed up with Qi. And of course, as an outsider, not sitting in media-controlled China, it's easy to say these type of things. But... Chi was seen as a COVID czar when things were doing okay, going okay. But as things are changing, I can't help but wonder what this will do to his kind of legacy or popularity. 
not to be Debbie down here, downer here either, though, but it seems like the worst is yet to come. And we are seeing real strains on the system, and it's going to be interesting to see if they hold up. And to wrap this episode up, The Economist writes, The epidemic is far from over. In the coming next weeks, millions of people will travel back to their hometowns for the Lunar New Year. They will spread the virus into rural areas with threadbare health systems. There are likely to be multiple waves of the virus. As bad as things are in China, the real test is yet to come. And I think this test is going to be multifaceted, and I obviously hope they get it together because I don't want anyone to die. But this seems like, again, one of those man-made crises that we actually might like read about down the road and go, God, they could have prevented this. So anyways, have a great rest of your evening. You'll find me on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Podbean, YouTube, blah, 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 blah. Peace.